Narcissist is a big word in popular psychology right now. And with terms like gaslighting and trauma bonding flying around the internet, it can be easy to feel lost and confused about whether or not you are in a toxic relationship. Today, I've brought Matthew Pfeiffer onto the Tripping Off podcast. That's M-A-T-T-P-H-I-F-E-R. And he's going to answer these questions. He's the viral relationship and life coach behind the TikTok account at Matt Pfeiffer Coaching with over 800,000 followers. But he's more than just a social media figure. He's a therapist, coach, speaker, and the author of Oh Shit, I Think They're a Fucking Narcissist. Matt, thank you so much for being here. This is great. Uh, I know we live in a little bit of separate worlds in the TikTok stratosphere, uh, but we bump into each other because we both work very strongly in the mental health field, helping people deal with things from the unconscious, with stress, with anxiety, and you specifically with narcissism uh, and trauma bonding and gaslighting, all these amazing things that I think would be fantastic for my audience to hear about. So Matt, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's an honor. You know, I've always respected everything you've done and everything that you bring to the table as well. Hey, well, thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> I um, I think a lot of people kind of get you confused online because you do. I mean, you have really honed in, which I appreciate. I think um, I think a lot of the therapists can be a little bit scattered in their mm -hmm. sort of topics. You know, sometimes they're talking about depression or anxiety, but you've got this razor focus on narcissism and relationships and couples, things of that nature. And I really appreciate that. And I think your audience does too. But uh, I've noticed that sometimes you get a lot of hate online, um, a lot of misunderstanding because it says Matt Pfeiffer coaching. And so they mm -hmm. think, you know, they're like, oh, well, what does this guy actually know? What are his credentials? So just for the sake of adding some credibility, um, because I really appreciate what you do, um, how did you get into this? What, what did you study? What's your background? And how did you start this journey into narcissism and abuse? So I, I studied uh, clinical mental health counseling from St. Bonaventure University. So I have a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Uh, so initially, um, so for a lot of people, when they look at my credentials, when they look at um, you know, my um, initials behind my name, they see MSED, which stands for master's science and education. Um, where the confusion comes in for a lot of people is that um, St. Bonaventure is one of the unique schools that the School of Psychology is actually housed in uh, the School of Education. And so they do it for several reasons. Um, so initially, uh, so a lot, a lot of people don't know, so initially when I went to school, um, I was going to be a guidance counselor, school guidance counselor. And oh, okay. you have the ability to actually get a dual track um, where you can actually have uh, both, um, you can have credentials both as a school guidance counselor and as a, as a regular clinician. And that's what I was initially going to do. Then I started realizing that school counseling wasn't all what I thought it was going to be. The summers <laughs> off sounded great, but at the same time, um, you know, it was more testing and assessment than it was about actually helping and, you know, kids and things like that. And so uh, took, a, took some time off, um, did, did some things in sales and marketing, which actually helped me out with what I'm doing as well. Then eventually went back and uh, finished up um, and just went straight laser focus, like you said, with clinical mental health counseling. Um, then started out my first, um, my first um, couple of jobs out of, um, out of uh, St. Bonaventure. Um, I was a, your a more traditional therapist um, in um, a substance use setting. So I worked at a place called Horizon. I worked uh, 
um, did some things for uh, Evergreen. Uh, okay, all these okay. were in Buffalo, New York. And so, um, so did, did a lot of different, different things in therapy, but um, ultimately um, I elected to, uh, to develop a coaching practice. And this is actually more common than what people think, where, where a therapist will transition over into coaching. And the reason why, um, there were several reasons why. At the time, I didn't realize that I was struggling with ADHD. Um, and so I liked the thought of having more freedom, right? Number two, even though it's very common right now, when I, when I made that transition, um, it was very uncommon to, uh, to work with people via Zoom. But the type of people I work with, guess what? Sometimes they can't leave home. Sometimes they need, they need to... Um, they right. need to work with someone and meet with someone who, while they're at work, you know, and so, um, for us, several different give us reasons, a timeline here, what, what, you know, most people are like, oh yeah, I do everything over zoom because of 2020, yeah. but you, you predated this. Oh yeah. Yeah. So a yeah. lot of people think that I started this because of TikTok. I was, I was doing this type of work long before I even realized uh, knew what TikTok was. So Matt's I, start, I made that transition. Yeah. <laughs> I made that transition in 20, 2016. Um, and moved to DC and did some things in DC and, um, and yeah, solid five years. Uh, just continued. Yeah. So, so things were, things just kept building and then TikTok. Uh, so I was already posting things online, mostly on Instagram. Um, and then TikTok and I just like blended so well together, especially the time frame, because fell in love. What, yeah. What, what happened was that you know, now I have this ability to be creative, to develop skits. You know, I'm now right in your face with things that people are uncomfortable with talking about. So I can actually develop, um, you know, uh, like, and people are able to see what they're actually dealing with. Because with this type of work, people think that they're the only ones dealing with it. They think that behind the scenes um, is, you know, that, that uh, because most of the, the behavior is happening behind closed doors. Yeah. And so I was right in your face. Yeah. So I was right in your face with people. Um, and, and so things just kind of took off and continue to blow up from there. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed a lot of, um, a lot of different therapists, a lot of different professionals are kind of opting for coaching. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? You think that's a good transition, a bad transition is, are the laws lagging behind and something needs to change? What's the deal there? It's not for everyone. I'll say that. Okay. Um, but I will say that uh, people who are extremely talented um, and I don't think the laws are lagging or anything like that, but, um, but people who are confident with what they're doing, if people want a laser sharp focus, like what you're talking about, I think yeah. it's great. Um, I do think that if someone's struggling with, uh, with an actual mental health disorder, they definitely need to see uh, an actual uh, therapist. I make recommendations to therapists all the time. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, because I think that a good coaching practice, you need to know when you are at your limits, when you, when someone needs to see someone who has, uh, when, when they need, um, like a higher level of care. Um, and That's so true. there's, so, um, you know, so a good, a good coaching practice works well, hand in hand with therapy. There's a lot of people I work with that see a therapist and they see, and they see me as well. Um, and so, um, the, uh, for, for a lot of, a lot of therapists, one of the main reasons why they're switching over is they, insurance is, is a headache. It's a big headache, you know, I and num- a lot of therapists, a lot like me, when I, um, when I've got into it, I don't like, di- I don't like feeling like I have to diagnose people. 
every single person that goes through their insurance, um, whether they know it or not, has to be diagnosed to actually charge the insurance. 100%. Then even that, the the you know, it's like pulling teeth, getting the money from the insurance companies, right? And so, um, so for a lot of different reasons, um, it just made more sense for me to for me to make that transition. And, and so for a lot of therapists, um, that transition is is great. Um, you know, because you don't have an, you don't have a cap on your income. You can work with people literally anywhere. I can work pe- with people across states. I can work with people in, in any country. Um, you know, but um, I'm also not guaranteed anything the way that people who who are working with insurance are, right? And so, sure. um, so there it comes with some risk, but it was a risk that I was willing to take. So it's got its place. It's got its time. It can be extremely helpful. But also knowing knowing kind of its benefits and its limits. Like I, yeah. I agree with that. Sometimes people come to me and I'm like, hey, you know, I'd love to work with you, but we're gonna need a success team on board here. You're gonna need a personal yeah. licensed mental health counselor in your area to go to, and then I'll work with you on these specific things. And it sounds like you do yeah. the same, which I think yeah, absolutely because you, I see you the best you, results. Yeah, you 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 have to because it's it's very. I always tell people who do that, it's very much it's very similar to having your general practitioner when you're talking about your physical doctor and then great example. Spec, right. So, uh, some people, they may have a therapist who's absolutely phenomenal with dealing with their inner child, dealing with emotional wounds and things like that, but they're also dealing with narcissists and then, and they, and they don't know how to get out of the relationship. Maybe the, the therapist it's, it's beyond their scope. And so, mm. uh, here we go. And so, um, you, you get the layer of both. Yeah. Let's, let's jump into that. How did, how did you go from substance abuse, you know, being, being in school, licensed counselor to specifically so razor focused on narcissism? Where'd that come from for you? So I, when I, even when I went to school, I always wanted to, um, so to come full circle, um, you know, when I, when I said that I wanted to be a school guidance counselor, one, one of the reasons why I went back and kind of everything started to fit better was um, I, I started to realize that um, that my desire to help children and teenagers was actually a, a, des- a much granular desire to actually help families and to help people uh, who, uh, and so kind of as I kind of matured and things like that. Uh, so when I went back, my initial thing was that I wanted to go into um, marriage, you know, marriage and family. And so, um, so long story short, you know, once you're done with school, uh, you take the first job that you're offered. So the the person, the the place this is that true. This is true. <laughs> yeah, the place that offered me a job was uh, my internship. Um, so it was a substance use place, uh, substance use um, clinic, mm-hmm. and um, it had more. At, and I was avoiding substance use like the plague. But when I actually got involved, um, I started to realize that it had more aspects of family than I thought initially. I was dealing with codependency. I was dealing with, you know, I ran a family group. I ran multiple, multiple different groups. And so, um, so it felt like I was drinking from a fire hose for a, for a little while because there were so many people in need, so many different issues. And when you're talking about people who are dealing with substances, dealing with substance, substances, you have to learn a wide variety of issues and coping and, um, and how it impacts them at work, how it impacts their love life, how it impacts them with dating, how it impacts their children. And, um, and one of the, one of the things that I started to realize was that people who are struggling in a toxic relationship and people who struggle with, uh, let's say heroin addiction, 
Mm. Um, it's literally the same exact struggle. It's literally the same part of the brain that, that deals with addiction, that people are dealing with toxic, uh, toxic uh, relationships. Okay. Wow. So there was, a, there, so there was a lot of, there were a lot of parallels, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, links. And so I was learning so much so quickly, mm. um, you know, at a, you know, at a rapid pace. And I just found, honestly, just found it very interesting. Um, and, um, and, and I also started to realize that not only had I been in toxic relationships, not only did I need to heal myself, not only did I have to go through this process myself personally, um, but uh, it, it, it almost like all of it just kind of melted and blended together. Um, and when I went out on my own, um, I initially was just helping people with your traditional like dating coaching type of stuff. Okay. I got on, I got invited to a podcast like this. Um, they asked me specific about toxic relationships and went, that went viral. Boom. Um, they asked me another, they invited me back another toxic relationship special went viral. And I was like, let me see where this goes. Let me see how this fits in in, ter- in terms of a niche. And then here we go. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a lot of the stories I've heard, you know, you just, you kind of talking about the things you learn about the things you're passionate about, and then something just connects. Right. It's, it's incredibly impactful to the listeners and to you professionally. Wow. That's great. So, so you're saying it, in kind of your professional experience, you found um, and discovered that the same parts of the brain that are sort of focused on and targeted in substance abuse counseling, like heroin are the same parts of the brain that can become addicted to relationships. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that people who struggle with heroin addiction will tell you is that the very first time that they've ever used, it's that it's the most euphoric feeling that they've ever felt in their life. Mm, yeah. And so what happens from that point forward is what, uh, is what they'll tell you they're, they're, they call it chasing the very first high. They're mm-hmm. trying to recreate that very first, that first euphoric feeling. So they have to use more often than what they have, or they try to use more heroin per, per use. And, and so, but when we look at a toxic relationship, that's what the love bomb phase is, right? The love bomb phase, when you think this person is your soulmate, right? You can't get enough yeah. of them. It's that euphoric yeah. feeling, right? And then what happens is that that transitions over into the devaluation phase where you, as the codependent, you're trying to recreate that very first high that when you thought that this person was the, mo- the best person that you've ever felt in your life, they're your soulmate. Right. You still see the good in them. A lot of people will say, I still see the good in them. I think that this person has potential. Right. But in the meantime, they're still devaluing you. They're still mistreating you, abusing you. Um, But you're spinning your wheels, working as hard as you can to get it back to the beginning. They're not going to allow it the same way that 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 substance. Right. Won't allow for you to get back to that euphoric feeling, which now creates that um, that cycle of abuse. Ooh, so the, so the partner becomes the addiction, like, like the narcissist exactly. would be the heroin in this yep. parallel. Exactly. Ah, okay. Do, and, do narcissists know that they're doing this? Like, do they like, oh yeah, no, I can't make, I can't love bomb them anymore because that would destroy this addictive connection that they have with me. Are, are they aware or is this something they don't know that they're doing? It's a, it's kind of a combination of both where they okay. they're very, there's days where they're very aware of what they're doing. And then there's days where, uh, where they're just doing it very, very subconsciously. Um, they do know, right. That they're, that they are aware that what they're doing, um, you know, that they need to be controlling. But one of the things that that's tough with narcissism is that they 
they get a thrill out of mistreating you. And this is where it gets very, very tricky. For a lot of people who don't struggle with this disorder, they say, well, how would anyone want, why would someone want to do this? That's impossible. Why would someone want to mistreat someone else? And how, and, and, and it's almost unbelievable that someone would intentionally gaslight someone or manipulate someone and how that potentially would make someone feel better when I'm sitting here watching this person cry. But when that, but when you're talking about narcissism, there's such a, a lot of times people think that they're very confident, but they're actually deeply, deeply insecure. Mm. So there's, there needs to be a constant overvaluation of themselves and a constant devaluation of everyone else. And you um, that devaluation of you makes themselves feel better because them having control, them knowing that they can push your buttons, getting, getting those, uh, those emotional reactions out of you, um, makes them feel more powerful. Right. And so, um, so it's, it's a very, very, uh, it's very tough to spot, very tough to, to deal with when you're in it. Yeah, that is difficult. So, so this comes from a brokenness inside of the narcissist where they feel, just, just this, um, I don't know if you call it self-loathing or just low self-esteem at, at yeah, least, not, but deep, like, uh, so, deep. so deep that it's, uh, that, you know, for, because one of the things that a lot of people don't, don't, don't know and aren't, aren't aware of is that, um, the person who's with the narcissist also suffers from low self-esteem. It just happens to not be as low as what narcissist is. Right. So we're dealing well, with that's someone. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So the narcissist actually has lower self-esteem than the one being hurt. Yep. Typically, so, the, so a lot of times people oh, wow. think that the codependent is uh, a lot of times people think that just get the codependent away from the narcissist. There's not, but I, I tell people this all the time. There's not one person in a relationship that needs work. There's two, mm-hmm. right? So the set, so the other person, the codependent also has to work on self-love self, uh, you know, both of them, they enter into what's called the codependent narcissistic dance where they're literally in this dance make, you know, basically in a performance um, to mask their own insecurities. One's constantly taking, the other person's constantly giving, right? Both of them um, to a, to an extent have control issues. Both of them need the other person in their mind, right? But uh, neither one of them are getting their needs met because, because of the toxicity of this dance, both of them, um, you know, one is constantly taking and uh, it just becomes a, becomes a mess. Yeah. Oof, it does. It does. They need each other. And I think, I think that's a great, well, that's a great thing to point out is that there's, there's this broken need that each of them fill. And that's why you can't mm-hmm. just, you know, you can't just liberate the person being hurt from the relationship. There's still brokenness in there. And there's two people that need the work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of times people will say, just, can we just get the narcissist to therapy? Nope. Can we just, but even if we had a Thanos glove and snapped our fingers, right. The codependent, would immediately feel insecure because they need to be needed, need to be wanted. And with nothing to fix now, all of a sudden they would, their insecurities would begin to show as well. Wow. That's intense. That's intense. So how do you, you know, you're saying this is difficult to, to spot kind of difficult to point out, like identify the narcissist. Are there some things that people can watch out for? Like, is it possible for a lay person to be aware that maybe they're meeting with a narcissist or narcissistic themselves? I don't know. Yeah, and when someone is uh, in these type of relationships, it's very common to feel like you're constantly walking on eggshells. Okay. Um, those are, you know, not feeling like you can't speak up for yourself, feel like you're constantly defending your relationship to other people. Um, this person is isolating you, uh, ultimately having control. A lot of times I'll, I'll uh, ask someone uh, if you are, um, you know, to, 
a lot of times people may have been with someone for 10 plus years and I'll ask them very simply, name one time that two of you guys got into a disagreement and this person was able to meet with you or compromise with you in any way. And most people can't name one time, even if it's 10 plus years that they've been together. Oh, right? that's a pretty not without, yeah. yeah, not with any, not without any type of recourse being done back to them. Like, yeah, I can remember one time they agreed with me, but man, they were throwing a tantrum and they were doing this. Right. And so, um, so people begin to start to see that this person has been controlling of them uh, the entire time. And quite often people can articulate what this, what they're afraid this person will do if they ever left the person, right? If I leave, I feel like they're going to wipe out the bank account. I feel like they're going to do this. I feel like they're going to do that. And so um, those type of things, we, we have to understand that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is a narcissist, okay. but we have a problem regardless, right? And so what, what I typically tell people is that um, as much, so I use narcissism, you know, I, I talk about it, but really my goal is for people to see the actual behavior because there's okay. a lot of reason why some people would behave this way. It could be due to trauma. It could be due to other, I mean, there's other, I mean, someone could be um, borderline personality disorder, histrionic. I mean, there's other, other cluster B spectrums that could be, mm -hmm. uh, they could be uh, antisocial. But the problem is, is that regardless, and, and, and I tell people not to get so focused on the title, the description, the diagnosis, because ultimately either way you're being mistreated, right? You're still being abused. You're still being manipulated. So um, ultimately we look at the behaviors of how someone is treating, treating you and then you go from there. Hmm. Yeah. This almost seems to go back to what you said in the beginning of the conversation, which is, you know, I'm into this coaching thing because I'm moving away from diagnosis. You know, mm -hmm. like sometimes um, I feel this is just my personal experience. I feel like people get really hung up on the words, narcissist, yep. empath, whatever, uh, codependent, gaslighting. It's like ah, beyond just trying to label something, uh, maybe we can just say that there's a problem here and it needs to be talked yep. about. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't, you don't have to be able to label it narcissist in order for it to be worth giving some time and attention to. Yeah, um, if there's a problem, there's a problem. Yep. So I guess, I guess let the, let the clinician diagnose narcissist, exactly. listen to some of the videos, it, watch some of the information be like, oh, mm -hmm. there's something to explore here. Yep. And, and, and then, but one of the things that, that people find out, even with the clinician diagnosing a narcissist is that narcissists won't go to therapy. And even if they do go, they won't go long enough to, uh, to get a diagnosis, right. Which mm. kind of skews the numbers, which kind of makes things even more difficult. You know, and so, um, so I encourage people to look at the behavior, um, look at how people are being treated. Uh, one of the things that we have to understand um, it, for the codependent, they think that they can change the other person, that they could do something to make a difference. And when they begin to let go of their own control, start to realize that they can't, they have no control over whether this person changes, whether they go to therapy, anything, anything like that they start to come to their own conclusion. And that's, that's where it becomes really powerful. They begin to validate themselves that, you know what, when I let go of this, as hurtful as this actually is, as painful as this actually is, I really deep down the side know that this person isn't going to change. Right. And so then people, it starts to make that decision-making, not, I want to say easier, but it starts making it more acceptable. And uh, it starts to really challenge you that, you know, I don't have as much control here as what I thought I did. Right. So yeah, I can begin yeah. to make some more, more practical decisions on what I need to do. 
Well, that's so interesting too, because the same reason that a narcissist will avoid therapy uh, is the same reason that it's difficult for an empath or someone who's codependent to leave a narcissistic yep. relationship. Because when they leave the narcissistic relationship, they really have to admit that they are out of control of changing mm -hmm. for the better, this person who's yep. diagnosed with narcissism. Mm -hmm. And so, well, they're both fighting for control and that's why mm -hmm. it's so toxic. Yep. And ultimately they, you know, ultimately they, uh, they, they have to do what they didn't want to do. They have to start facing their fears. Yeah. You know, they have to start facing some, some, uh, quite often some childhood wounds. They have to start to dialogue about some things that they haven't done in a long time. Uh, one of the things I, I tell people is that the, the heal, when you, <clears throat> when you start healing from narcissistic abuse, you start to realize that there was actually a much bigger problem there. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, you, uh, you start to see that I've been in, uh, allowing a lot of people to mistreat me. The narcissist may have gotten me to, to therapy, to coaching, you know, and may have opened my eyes to my own behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but people most of the time start to realize that there's a much bigger issue. And that they have a lot of people who are who are um, mistreating them, who are pushing them over because people who lack boundaries, people who lack self worth, um, typically, you know, have the ability to end up in these type of relationships, and so they have to start dealing with those things. And that, yeah. and quite often, it means that you have to embrace the the things that you fear the most. That's true, and and both both are ploys for control. Like being, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a weird sort of way, there is a lot of control by being the one who's codependent. Mm -hmm. And so they're both trying to gain control, but they do it in opposite and mm -hmm. toxically complementary ways. Yep. Uh, so, well, the question that I get asked a lot when people ask me about narcissism is, um, as we talk about this, they kind of sound like monsters. Are narcissists bad? Is there, is there hope? Is it just, yeah, that's the way they're going to be forever. Uh, so I, I don't like painting anyone a monster. Right, unless they're, you know, because we, we have people on all sorts of spectrums of narcissism in, uh, okay. and, but one of the things I do, uh, I do tell people is that it, it's what you're, what you, you have to go based on your own personal experience. And here's the reason why you have some people that, um, that the person that they are with, or maybe it's a toxic narcissistic mother. You may see that person as a narcissist and you may personally see them as a monster. The rest of the world might see that person as their savior. And it's very difficult for people to, uh, people who have been victimized by that person to um, reconcile both, right? So it's what, you, we have to go based on what you feel about that person, yeah. right? Based on your experience of that person. And if, if your experience is that you feel that person is a monster, they've mistreated you, then guess what? Then validate that. And we need to begin to set good, healthy, emotional, emotional boundaries and mental boundaries, understanding that it's okay for other people to think this person is the most wonderful person in the world, right? Because, uh, because narcissism, it, it spans across classes, across, um, you know, there's pastors that are narcissists, there's teachers that are narcissists, there are, and uh, there's politicians, there's, uh, you know, celebrities, you know, um, and there's people that uh, don't make a lot of money, right? That that, mm -hmm. are, that could potentially be narcissist. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is that because of their mask, because of the mask that they wear, they could be, they could have a great performance and, you know, and whatever they, it is that they do. And uh, they could be an absolutely amazing teacher or salesperson, right. And win salesperson of the year. And so maybe to them, this person is an angel, right. Mm -hmm. But for you, 
We have to go by our own personal experience and be okay with them being an angel in some people's mind. And also that this person also for me uh, is, a, is an absolute monster. Ooh, it almost seems like it almost seems like that need for control kind of squeezes out and bubbles up in mm-hmm. other areas where it's like, well, since I'm letting go of control of the narcissist, I need to maintain control of other people's opinion of the narcissist. Bingo. And it's like, uh-uh, Big, pop that bubble. Yeah. Whoop, you're okay, even if they don't agree with you. Your yeah. opinion's still valid. And man, right. is that healing. That's beautiful. That's, uh, okay. that's, that's really difficult for a lot of people, yeah, especially with codependency. You know, because one of the things that people who struggle with codependency struggle with is uh, people pleasing, you know, and they want they, they want everyone to think they're they're amazing. You know, it's one of the reasons why they struggle with leaving the narcissist is that they don't want to be the bad guy. They don't want to be the villain. You'll hear people say, I don't want to rock the boat. Um, and so um, when they start to realize that, especially when the narcissist starts to uh, starts to uh, do the smear campaign, um, and starts to spread rumors about them and sp- starts to spread lies about them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that actually causes people to stay or to, uh, to not, uh, not want to, or to get back into a bad relationship because they don't want people thinking that they're the bad guy. They're allowed to though. Mm-hmm. They're allowed, they're allowed to have it in their opinion of you. Right. And you, you going into people pleasing mode just to please someone who probably doesn't like you to begin with right, is how we end up in these toxic relationships and is how we, uh, is how we um, become like a very, uh, a shell of ourselves and become very inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was eye-opening to me. That makes a lot of sense then and how it's so difficult to, to leave the relationship and to be okay with, there's a lot of things that are outside of my control. And I just kind of have to accept some of those while still validating my opinion, my self-worth. That's tough. Okay. So, all right. So narcissists aren't bad or monsters. We really can't, that's a little bit too black and white to paint someone that way. They could absolutely be, I don't know, a great public servant. They could absolutely be a great speaker or performer, whatever. Uh, And then at home behind closed doors, uh, they could be an absolute, just difficult person to be with and very toxic, very abusive. Um, Those two realities can live simultaneously. Mm Mm-hmm. That Absolutely. makes sense. That makes sense a lot with my experience too, like with hypnotherapy and dream work, which is just that piece of there are two very separate, but both equally true realities that exist yeah. simultaneously and helping people understand and accept that um, is a huge part of, I think the work that we both do. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. So, so to clarify some terms that I think a lot of my followers have, um, I just got like two questions um, that I want to sort of go over. When you talk about um, gaslighting, what is that's a term that's getting thrown around a lot. It's very pop psych yeah. right now. Um, I see it all over the place. Sometimes I see it and I'm like, ah, is that really gaslighting? And other times right. I see it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's gaslighting. Yeah. How do you help us do that? So I, I actually, uh, I'm, I actually don't like the term gaslighting. Um, okay. Because I think it because like you said, it's confusing. I actually prefer prefer the clinical term, which is crazy making. And we have to understand that, the, like that, that, uh, so, um, what we have to understand about gaslighting slash crazy making, um, is how insidious it actually is mm. a lot of times. So um, going back to what you just said, in terms of, you know, hearing people use it and it being tossed around, um, some, you know, someone might lie to you and someone may say this person is gaslighting. That, that's a form of gaslighting, but gaslighting is much more insidious than that. 
And so, so some people might, I've seen people say, uh, oh, stop gaslighting me, but just because the person disagrees with him and they're stating their point of their point of view, that's also not gaslighting. Not it. Gaslighting, the person literally is trying to make you feel like you're crazy, right? Trying to change a story that you already know, a narrative that you already know. And it can be very, very insidious, right? To the point where one, one of, I'll say this is an extreme form of gaslighting, but this is actually very common. Um, so you may come home and you may hang your keys exactly in the same spot that you do all the time. Mm-hmm. Someone who's, who's narcissistic, if they're upset with you, or if they just want to start a fight, they just want some extra attention. They just want to get a thrill and, and get an emotional reaction out of you. They may take your keys off the hook and hide them. So the next day you get up and you, and it, it goes beyond reason, right? Everyone's that's, like, well, well, why would you, why would someone do that? Why would, that's this pretty is where it gets, this is where it really gets really, really crazy, right? That yeah. because it goes beyond reason, that's like you. And so for, uh, for someone who's been victimized that, that this way and to say to someone, I think my husband, or I think my wife is hiding my keys. People would think that you're crazy, right? Like, why would your husband or wife hide your keys? But here's how it works. So they hide your keys and you wake up, you're like, where, where are my keys at? I'm running late for work. Right. And so the, the narcissist may say something like you never put your keys in the right spot, making you feel like you're doing something wrong. Okay. You never put your keys in the right spot. You're always, you know, you're, you screw this up just the way that you always screw up our, our finances. See what you're, see what you're doing. Everything is your fault. And so they're demeaning you the entire time while your stress is through the roof, you're looking for your keys while you're late, you're walking around the house. And then you finally find your keys under the, under the couch. Right. And, and they're like, yeah, see, because you're so tired, you don't even know what you're doing. This, and, and they continue to accuse you of something that you didn't do. Wow. And so meanwhile, you start to like, well, I could have sworn I hung my keys up and they're sitting here and keep in mind, this is someone that you trust. This isn't just some random person off the street. Yeah. This is your husband. This is your wife. This is your mother. These are people that we're supposed to trust. And they're intentionally sabotaging you while you're, you know, and then you're running late for work. And then guess what? These type of things happen consistently, mm-hmm. right? One of the things that's hard for people when they're recovering is that is to understand that they're going to have to have closure about certain things that they may not, not ever know the full story of it. You know, I've, I've seen and heard narcissists yeah. emailing employers um, under the person's name, causing issues, because the, the more that they can cause issues for you, the more that they actually have control. And if they can convince you that you're crazy, and for, for a lot of people who have dealt with narcissism, they'll, along with everything that I just explained, they'll ask you certain things like, did you take your pills today? You must have, you must have, uh, you know, you have something wrong with you. You must be bipolar, right? Because if I can convince you that you're crazy, mm. right, then in theory, you have to submit all of your arguments to me, right? And that's what the narcissist is trying to do. I have more control, right? If I can convince you that something's wrong with you. And so then what happens is that, um, that the victim starts to second guess all of their decision-making, even in, including something as simple as what do I want for lunch, right? And so what happens is that you start to, you, you yeah. literally will just go back to this other person uh, for what your, what your reality actually is. And then they're getting the control and the validation that they're looking for because Amen. they've they've ruined your life to a point to where you can't get away from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or at least that's the. I mean, yeah, that's the line it, it is. It's and that's exactly that's exactly it. As strange as it sounds, right? Because people who don't have don't struggle with this disorder, 
we think, okay, let, let me treat this person with respect so then they don't want to leave. With someone who's narcissistic or toxic, it's the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I'm treating this person this bad and they still won't leave, they won't ever leave. Right. So let me just continue and this. Let me just let me just continue to mistreat them. And every time I mistreat them, they keep on treating me better because you're trying to get it back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So as long as I continue to mistreat them, I can continue to stay in control. I get to continue to stay on top. Right. And so that's where we get back to that codependent narcissistic dance. Yeah. Ooh, that is insidious. Okay. so so this term may be this gaslighting term is being thrown around a little bit too liberally. Actual yeah. gaslighting is nasty. It is. Yeah. It is crippling. This yeah. disabling. Many uh, forms. There's intense. definitely many forms of it. I mean, um, there. I've I've heard and I've seen narcissists where, where they will literally keep people up all night, use sleep depri- deprivation. I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, try to convince you know because uh, if I can keep you up all night and you're just begging to go to sleep, you'll cave to my argument. Mm-hmm. Um, like you miss, you, you miss, you miss, uh, read that you didn't see that you didn't see it the way that you saw it. Right. And will literally get you to question your own reality. Right. And that's really what gaslighting is. Ooh, that gets, that gets, uh, spooky. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so one other term I wanted to ask about, um, that was incredibly insightful about gaslighting. Um, but another term that I hear a lot, um, and a lot of times I hear that people almost think like it's, it's like a good thing. Um, but that sounds weird to me is trauma bonding. Some people think like, mm-hmm. oh, we've been through this trauma together. And so now we're super, super close and they label that trauma bonding. Um, I don't think that's really what it is. No, <laughs> um, no. it's, it's a little bit, a little bit dirtier, grosser than that. Uh, yeah. can you, can you talk to us just for a minute about, about what that is? So, uh, trauma bond is the actual addiction. I, I call, I consider it like the, the addiction. Um, and it comes from, um, okay. it comes from the, the, um, the unpredictability of the relationship. It also comes and, and what's strange about the trauma bond, um, it actually gets strengthened by the, un, the, the unmet promises, the unkept promises from the narcissist, right? The, the promises that I'll change the promises that these things won't happen again. I'll stop cheating. And internally the victim knows that, that these are lies, but they stay because of the hope. And so here's what studies show on it, right? So um, it's very similar. I always forget if it's rats or if it's a monkey that they did this with. But um, there was uh, there was um, there was this light. They would have a light, and at the same time every day, mm-hmm. right? Certain treats would come down, and the rats would get really excited. There would be dopamine that would start pumping through their body, right? Right, and so. What happened is that the that they began to whittle down the treats. The light and, and the the light and the alarm would go on same time every single day, but they began to cut the treats in half to a point where sometimes the treats would come out, sometimes it didn't. But the rats were always excited about the reward. Most people would think that their dopamine would go down when the, when the treats went down. They actually went up. Yes, and it became they actually became more addicting. Right. And so this is very similar to a trauma bond. Mm-hmm. When you first meet the person, um, you know, during the love bond phase, everything is close to perfect. You think this person is your soulmate. You can't see anything, anything bad ever happening in this relationship. Well, eventually they cut down on the reward system. Right. They cut down on the way that they treat you and treating you well. They start becoming more abusive. 
but you still get excited about the potential of the, of this person. Your dopamine still keeps going up. And, and whenever they do treat you well, every once in a while, just enough to, to show you that, uh, that, 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 that quote unquote good person is still there, right? Your, your, your bond goes up, right? It get, becomes even stronger. So you stay in a, an abusive relationship or uh, struggle with leaving it because you still see good in them because you're now literally addicted to this person, right? You're addicted to the yeah. false hope that, yeah. that this person possibly could change or that you could change them, the unpredictability of the relationship, right? And what happens is that when, when someone does actually leave, they're actually leaving the familiar. You are so familiar and you are now so used to the, the extreme highs and the extreme lows of the relationship that going back to the, it's very similar to the person I was talking about that struggles with heroin. A lot of people who struggle with heroin, a lot of times the reason why they relapse isn't because they want to continue using heroin, it's because they don't like the feelings of withdrawal. It's painful. It hurts. Sleepless nights, the sweats, all of it, right? Yeah. It's the same thing with people who are in the trauma bond. When they leave a when they leave a, a, a toxic relationship, right? A lot of times they want to go back, not, not because they think this person can change, but it feels so uncomfortable to be to be away from them. It hurts, sleepless nights, the pain. They actually have to deal with their own insecurities, that the pain and the, and, and they start to miss them in an unhealthy way where they become obsessive with them. Right. And that's, that's where it comes in, where it's very similar to an addiction. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So then, so then, um, I think a thing that I hear that maybe it sounds like is a misunderstanding. Um, you are not referring to the honeymoon phase of a relationship where it's like, you know, you're dating and you're going out on dates and they get flowers and, you know, it's all nice. And then you get into a serious committed relationship and things, you know, fires of passion die down a little bit. You're dealing with the daily stresses of life. And so maybe you don't have as much time for each other. That's not trauma bonding. That's a normal part of a relationship. This is much more insidious, much more insidious. Um, much, you know, where literally you feel like you, you know, when you start getting into um, these situations where like, if you feel like you, um, if you don't call them back within five minutes, that this relationship is going to be over, or you know, that, that, that there's going to be, um, okay. that there's going to be something, um, something's going to be done, or there's going to be harm done if you don't call them back within five minutes, you know? Uh, so trauma bond, is not so much a phase, it's something that develops through these relationships. Okay. So the love bomb phase, like, is where the trauma bond, where, where that narcissist gets their hooks into you, where the trauma bond is developed. Um, but then it's, it also strengthens through the devaluation phase, and it becomes more apparent when it's time to leave. Mm. Man, I'm over here thinking about every pop song I've ever heard. I'm like, all those pop songs mm-hmm. sounds like trauma bonding songs. <laughs> yeah. Some, some actually are. If you guys want to know a really good artist that talks that uh, his um, songs and his music are a lot about toxic relationships is uh, Post Malone. He has several out there. Oh, oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of a couple. Yep, that makes yep. sense. Yeah, his songs. And then uh, there's there, there, there's a lot of themes and a lot of different movies. One of one of my uh, one of my favorite TV shows that people have been through it. Um, you you can watch a TV show and you're like, oh, this person has been through it. So mm-hmm. Jessica Jones is one of them. Mm. Uh, so in, in her show, um, very, very clear, right? The writers did a really good job of, um, you yeah, know, that, that, that was interesting in, in multiple different seasons. Um, 
Another one um, dealing with a female narcissist was um, Gone Girl. That was okay. a good one. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. This puts a whole new perspective on things. Because I think sometimes people see the passion in those relationships. And they're like, oh, I want that passion in my relationship. Yeah. No, you don't. Nope. I guarantee it. That's bad. <laughs> nope. And, that, and that's, that's a lot of reason why I do what I do. Because a lot of times people, they do. Education. Like who, who, taught, who, taught us, who taught us how to date? Right. Typically we learn, we learn from movies, but what's what's interesting is that when we're watching movies, when we see an action scene, we're like, oh, that's fake. We see like all this, you know, all the camera action, like, oh, that's fake. But then we see a love scene or romantic scene, like, oh, I want that. That's fake too. Right. And so so we have to, (laughs) so we have to put in perspective that, that like a lot of things that we say and a lot of things that we see, you know, just, just aren't accurate too what real life actually is. Wow. Wow. That's incredibly insightful. I'm really glad uh, that you're doing the work that you do so people can learn and understand um, just the things that you see, the expectations that you might have. Um, Sometimes those are just the singular, tiny, bright, shiny point of a deeply toxic and painful relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that's worthwhile or healthy to recreate. Wow. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. I've learned a lot. Uh, I know my followers have too. So uh, if you want to check him out, uh, please. I mean, why wouldn't you follow him on TikTok and all the social media platforms? Uh, Matt Pfeiffer Coaching, M-A-T-T-P-H-I-F-E-R Coaching. Uh, And you can find him, same website, mattpfeiffercoaching.com. Worth a look. Check him out. A lot of helpful information for free or if you sign up for some of his group courses. They're fantastic. Cool. Well, thanks for being here, Matt. I uh, look forward to working with you more in the future, man. We're right along that same path. That's great. This episode of the Tripping Off Podcast was sponsored by HD Counseling. They are truly the future of therapy with a network of over 50 therapists in the Orlando and Winter Park area who each specialize in different mental health topics. They provide the care and empathy needed to truly change your life. What makes them unique is that each therapist runs their own business under the cooperative of HD Counseling. So no matter what you're going through, you will receive an independent, highly motivated therapist who will care and empower you to create change in your life. Even if you are outside the Orlando area, every therapist offers telehealth sessions to anyone in the state of Florida. Find your perfect therapist at www.hdcounseling.com. They are committed to your growth.